Hi, this is Jill Jarris. From September 2017 through April 2020, this podcast was known as Olympic Fever. We've since changed its name to keep the flame alive, but we're committed to keeping our back catalog available to you. So please keep the name change and this disclaimer in mind as you listen to it. Olympic is a trademark of the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, or USOPC. Any use of Olympic in the Olympic Fever podcast is strictly for informational and commentary purposes. The Olympic Fever podcast is not an official podcast of the USOPC. The Olympic Fever podcast is not a sponsor of the USOPC, nor is Olympic Fever associated with or endorsed by the USOPC in any way. The content of Olympic Fever podcast does not reflect the opinions, standards, views, or policies of the USOPC, and the USOPC in no way warrants that content featured in Olympic Fever is accurate. Thanks for listening, and now on to the show. Finally, the guy behind us taps me on the shoulder and says, Dude, who are you? Mesdames et Messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Oh! You can do it! You can do it! Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant! But that is an Olympic champion. Ready? Hello and welcome to another episode of Olympic Fever, the podcast for Olympic fans. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing well, too. We're getting back in the swing. It's January. We did some planning, so I'm really the excited. Are over. Yes. I finished yeah. Rome last night. Oh, nice. That's right. Our we book have club book. Our book club book. We're going to have book club meet again at the end of the month, so get your Rome 1960 read or listened to. And if you haven't, you can go on our website, olimfever.com and click on the Amazon button. We also have a book club page. And if you click on the books there and order through Amazon, you will help support the show for which we would be eternally grateful. I would ask what you thought, but. Well, uh, here's here's my little spoiler alert. Mm -hmm. Avery Brundage is a big fat creep. Right. Oh, gosh. The more I know about him, the less I like him. Oh. But I can see why the IOC, the old IOC, liked him. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Man, okay. oh, man, oh, man. Yeah, get well, ready teaser. for Avery Brundage chat, man. Ooh. We will be going to town on him. I'm not <laughs> as far as you are in the book. Well, you're done, but I'm not yeah. as far. <laughs> I would say. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. But I know. I know what happens. So, yeah, it's good. It's, it's, it is a good read. It is a good read. David I enjoyed Martin's it very good. much. Yes very good writing. So that's exciting. But today we are going to talk marketing, which is also exciting. And it's really interesting because marketing and social media is so pervasive, but the, you forget where it comes from. Back in the day. Yeah, back in the day. So we've got a little bit of historical marketing today. Today we're talking with Stuart Sheldon, who worked on Olympic and national governing body campaigns with agencies and with Coca-Cola, mainly in the mid-1990s. So we're talking pre-social media, and it was really the time marketing beyond just the time period of when the games themselves happened, right when that took off. And Stu is one of the people to thank for making that happen, and here he tells us how. Take a listen. How did you get involved with marketing in the Olympics? I was a college athlete and my uncle was worked for the NCAA in the championships division. So I thought what he did was cool. And I thought that what I wanted to do as a career was to put on the best possible events for athletes, which is, uh, what he did at the NCAA, and then he was the vice president of sports for the Goodwill Games in Seattle, Washington. So he spent over a decade, my Uncle Jim did, and I just thought that was cool. So after college, I moved to San Antonio, Texas, where I was a high school swimming and water polo coach, also worked for 
the San Antonio Sports Foundation as an event director. And it was in that job that I started putting on sports events for athletes, USA Cycling, Junior National Championships with athletes from all over the country, modern pentathlon World Cup event with athletes from around the world, uh, and other Olympic sport events. From there, I moved through a couple of different roles that brought me to Atlanta, sports marketing, worked for almost a decade on Coca-Cola's U.S. sponsorship of the national governing bodies uh, every day. That was my full-time job. So um, I worked with everyone from USA Badminton to USA Track and Field and USA Table Tennis. Do not call it ping pong. And uh, <laughs> worked with them on Olympic hopefuls and national championships and how to take the Olympics from being a televised 17 day event to a 365 day local national event and did that until the late 90s and then went into more traditional marketing roles and worked on a couple other olympics as a coca-cola employee but not the games themselves just more on the consumer promotion side of it so your Olympic era goes from Alberville to Nagano. So it's really the 90s was your heaviest involvement. Is that right? That's correct, yes. Okay. And I went to Lillehammer. I, uh, living in Atlanta, I was involved multiple ways in the Atlanta Olympics uh, as a spectator, as a volunteer at the water polo venue, and I... Uh, carried the torch a couple days before opening ceremonies on my bike. And then I uh, was involved in, uh, like you said, Nagano and, and on from there, Salt Lake City, et cetera. I don't even know where to start. There's like a million questions I could ask right <laughs> I now. I know. I know. So, so you how, know, how, about, how yeah. about if I give you just a funny anecdote to kind of get the ball rolling? Let's go. Excellent. <laughs> so... Leading up to the Atlanta Centennial Olympic Games in 1996, I had spent five years traveling all over the country, meeting Olympic hopefuls in basically every sport in the Summer Olympic and Winter Olympic Games. And I had met athletes from other countries as well. So we went to, my wife and I went to opening ceremonies with some friends of ours who were clients at Coca-Cola and we were sitting in about the sixth row of the stadium very soon after the athletes walked onto the track and made the right hand turn to start their counterclockwise parade. And so when the Canadian team came out, when a couple of other countries came out, uh, I would call, I would call out athletes names. And they would turn and they would look around and I'd be waving and they'd go, oh, hey, Stu. And they'd wave back. And <laughs> then the U.S. team came out, you know, with thousands of people. And I'd call out a few names and people would wave at me. And finally, the guy behind us taps me on the shoulder and says, dude, who are you? <laughs> I said, I am nobody. I just have passed out a lot of Coca-Cola over the last five years. <laughs> that was that was definitely a ton of fun just to see people, some of whom I'm still friends with today, to see those people at you know one of the highest points of their lives and and just be able to say hi to them. That was a lot of fun. So, what was the marketing attitude or the approach to marketing like back in the 90s? Because as you, as you mentioned, the Olympics were still kind of a 17-day event every two years, and one of your jobs was to make them more of a year-round focus. Yeah, so the genesis of the program I worked on was that Coca-Cola 
did not want to get ambushed, ambush marketing uh, leading up to the 1996 Olympic Games. So Coca-Cola worked with the U.S. Olympic Committee and Coca-Cola signed official soft drink contracts with, I believe, every single summer and winter NGB in the United States. So that was then a purely a defensive move and it was kind of write write the checks and, and be done with it. The gentleman we worked for, our client at Coca-Cola was a fellow named Ty Taylor. Ty has unfortunately since passed away. But Ty saw this as an opportunity to make it a brand building opportunity, not just a defensive opportunity. And so he hired the agency I worked for at the time, and we started to build a program that started out as just providing product to the VIP areas and the athlete areas during the events uh, and evolved over time to become local, regional, and national promotions that would be done either by a specific Coca-Cola bottler in, say, Nashville, Tennessee, because the men's Olympic water polo team was having a pre-Olympic exhibition match there, to the IGA grocery store team at Coca-Cola working with IGA all across the country on a three-year program with USA Softball to where even IGA tractor-trailer rigs driving down the highway had USA Softball Olympians painted on the side of the trucks, and every store was executing two or three USA Softball programs a year and really became about, you know, how do we localize it? How do we personalize it? In, in the age of digital marketing that it is today, uh, we would talk about how that's you know, mass customization and it would be delivered on a portable screen on, a, on an electronic device. But what we were doing at the time was predominantly driven by in-store messaging, uh, packaging takeovers, and local media building awareness of the event coming to town talking about Olympic hopefuls in their own hometowns, et cetera, et cetera. And it really became a program that the USOC then turned into their own program uh, for the actual Atlanta Olympics, uh, where they were, the USOC was selling bundled sponsorship rights to the NGBs, to USOC and IOC sponsors. But the Coca-Cola program was the one that was, came up with the concept and, and proved the concept was viable. So that was pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, Coca-Cola had been a sponsor of the Olympics forever. I think it started in something like 1924, yeah, 28, 1928. 1928, because yes. this, this is the 100th year. Yeah, oh, yeah. that's right. And to see that it you know, it was until the 90s that it really significantly changed, I think is interesting, that it was just sort of this kind of sideline gig at Coke, and now well, it's so it synonymous. Coca-Cola has always done a fantastic job in the host city or cities for an Olympic Games of building awareness of the association, <clears throat> whether that's uh, signs or experiences or availability. And there's been a lot of promotion that has been done over the years. But to my knowledge, the period we're talking about was the first time where there was a systematic effort to make it a year-round, multi-year activity. And I don't know that it's been done since either about the closest you could come, at least in the United States, is uh, Home Depot for a while had their Olympic jobs program. Right. Yeah, I remember that. And, and I know there are a couple of activities similar to that now, um, but nothing like what 
we were talking about. Nothing like what we were doing. So how much money did they invest in developing these programs? That's the interesting thing about it is it, it wasn't all that expensive. The, the hardest challenge we had as a marketing team was bridging the knowledge gap quickly for the local bottler. Um, they're very smart business operators and they know their market well, but our initial forays, we were focusing too much on the details of the rights that Coke had with the Olympics and we were confusing them. And that wasn't their fault. That was all our fault. And we unlocked the box uh, in a conversation with the bottler when they leaned back from the table when we were having our first planning meeting and they said, so what you're saying is this is a promotion just like the big college football rivalry game that we do every year. It's just the Olympics. And we turn and look at each other and we said, yeah, you're right. So then they knew exactly what to go do. And, and we took care of the IOC, USOC, NGB specific aspects of it. They didn't, the, the bottlers didn't have to worry about that stuff. They just went and did what they're used to doing, which is coming up with creative promotions, coming up with uh, dynamic in-store displays, bringing in retail partners, getting local media partners, having a great experience at the venue, et cetera. They know how to do all that stuff. Now, they do it very well. The bottlers, if I remember this correctly, are franchisees for Coke? Correct. Okay. Correct. I, know, I remember that Coke only owns a certain number of bottlers. So how much discretion did they have? How much freedom did they have to do all these local programs? Complete discretion. Hmm. We, we basically had three levels at our peak. Uh, num le the lowest level was that we had a budget for us to be able to order product to be delivered to the stadium or the swimming pool or wherever. And that product would be used for the athletes and officials and VIPs. And in exchange for that, we would get some banners put up and, you know, a, a PA ad or a program ad. And, and we'd get a few tickets and we'd give those to the bottler. The second tier was where the bottler was more involved um, and they maybe had a customer or two that they were doing some hospitality and uh, they may be doing a, an in-store promotion uh, with a customer. And then the third would be like I talked about with IGA and USA softball where it was major or Fresca, uh, a Coca-Cola brand Fresca, which is all about the great outdoors we worked on behalf of Fresco with USA Cycling and USA Canoe and Kayak. And Fresca sponsored for a couple years over 80 different bike races across the country from a junior national championships all the way up to an Olympic trials and even a couple of professional races uh, the big one was uh, Tour DuPont, uh, which was also called Tour de, de, de Trump for a couple of years. Uh, that doesn't exist anymore uh, in, in either form. Uh, but that was a big race that went up and down the East Coast of the United States. Um, so that, that was major involvement there. So it really was both a top-down and a bottom-up program. Yes. Yeah. Huh. But the majority of we did hundreds of events a year, uh, hundreds. And the majority of them were bottom up. Um, we had about 40 to 50 events a year, and I'm doing that from memory, uh, 40 to 50 events a year that were top down, like Fresca and the USA Cycling National Championships or the Olympic Trials, or the same thing for USA Canoe and Kayak, or Coca-Cola was a big sponsor of USA Gymnastics National Championships and Olympic Trials. 
we also did a lot with boxing and a couple other NGDs as well. And, and the interesting point on the budget was um, several of the NGBs had a sponsor and not the same one, different sponsors who had given them what the NGB thought was a really big check. And then the sponsor had done next to nothing beyond that. So we, we basically said, Hey, look, we might not be able to give you as much money um, directly, but we're able to give you, for example, USA Cycling. We will put USA Cycling and a membership information for USA Cycling. We'll put it on tens of millions of Fresca 12-pack wrappers uh, all across the country for three months. So we, we were able to bring the scope and scale of the Coca-Cola distribution and and packaging awareness and drive big marketing value that some of these NGBs would otherwise not get from anyone. Yeah, that's just smart. Right. Especially if you're a small NGB with almost no budget to get that marketing power in your court has to be really beneficial, I would say. Yeah, I think you're right. And you know, the, we, we had some hiccups too with with some of the larger NGBs, you know, they were, they operate with more zeros. Okay. Like who? <laughs> yeah. Tell uh, you, you can name names. Years have passed. No, I'm not going to name names. <laughs> oh. But I, I, I remember being in a meeting with an NGB, the, the CEO of the NGB. And this was one of the first NGBs to have a CEO as opposed to an executive director. And the CEO called this meeting at Coke headquarters with our client, Ty Taylor and us, and brought in uh, a senior executive from one of the big professional sports marketing and sports agent firms that had signed an exclusive marketing deal with the NGB. And so they came in and gave a presentation and, and it was all about how they could put together these major events in their sport, uh, which was a popular grassroots sport in the United States, but not popular, you know, at, at like a television level. And so the comment was, we can put, we can bring together six of the top 10 teams in the world in any city in the United States in six weeks. And here's how much that will cost you. And we looked at them and said, we need six months to a year, and that's our entire program budget. So that meeting didn't go so well. <laughs> How did you decide what brands fit which NGBs? So we had a matrix that we got from one side of the matrix from our client at Coca-Cola that listed the brands and who their target audience was, age, demographic, psychographic, et cetera. Uh, and then we knew from each of the NGBs sort of who their members were. And we would look for intersections. So, for example, Coca-Cola in the red can. Coca-Cola is, you know, for everyone and goes great with food and all of that, but has at times had a bit of a blue collar angle to it and a little bit of small town feel to it. And USA softball is not, you know, it's not an urban sport. It's not a big city sport. It's smaller towns, uh, smaller cities. Uh, yes, they do play it some in big town, in big cities, but, um, and then from, so, a little bit of a blue collar feel to Coke, a little bit of a rural county feel to USA softball. And then there's this uh, Coca-Cola customer out there, IGA grocery stores, 80%, 80% of its store locations are on main street in whatever town they're in. So big connection there. Fresca I mentioned earlier it's, you know, it's a grapefruit flavored drink. 
crisp and refreshing. Its packaging today is different, but back then it sort of had some some mountain cues to it and was very interested in the outdoors. So we started looking at outdoor sports. And uh, interestingly enough, the guy who was running Fresca at the time was a uh, former bicycle racer. Uh, and interestingly enough, so was I. So um, when we were looking at all the NGBs, we kind of said, well, what about cycling? <laughs> and that seemed like a pretty good, uh, pretty good idea. Plus, you had these big races like, like Tour de Pont, um, where you had uh, hundreds of thousands of people on the side of the road, and it was very easy to be a couple hours in front of the race, just like at the Tour de France. Uh, you'd be a couple hours in front of the race every day with trucks full of ice-cold fresca and T-shirts and sunglasses and things like that, passing out free samples of fresca. It was great for that. Were there any brands that just either were really hard to fit or just did not work at all? No. And the reason I say that is because we decided to focus where the interest was. So you know, a lot of interest from the Coke brand team, um, interest, a lot of interest from the Fresca team, interest from the Powerade team, uh, a little bit of interest from Diet Coke we did some work with USA Basketball on behalf of Sprite because of its NBA relationship. Um, so that was pretty much it. Okay. Then years later, you worked on the consumer side and did consumer marketing. And I have to say, I am a proud owner of many My Coke Rewards Olympic souvenirs. So what was the approach when targeting the Olympics toward the consumer? Yeah, so even... As far back as uh, the NGB program I was talking about, we were targeting the consumer, I feel, because it was all about helping folks in Wichita, Kansas, uh, understand that there was a kid from Wichita who uh, was trying to make the Olympic team in whatever sport, you know, table tennis or badminton or track and field. And... So we were constantly, that was what it was all about, was constantly trying to build that mass customization connection. Was it easier for either summer or winter? I think the answer is, and this is without any data, um, but, but I think it was easier for the summer sports. Just because, number one, there were about twice as many of them, and number two, their participation in them and understanding of them was more of a national thing. You know, cross-country skiing, biathlon, ski jumping, bobsled, cool sports. But, you know, not a lot of people in the United States have ever done biathlon. Lots of people in the United States have played even recreationally, table tennis or badminton or volleyball, or they ran around the track a few times in PE in high school. So I think those summer sports probably had a more universal understanding, which worked to their advantage. When you were working for different Olympics, like you started with Albertville, ended with Nagano, did you take different, like, themes from each one or or like try to build off of what the host city was marketing as their theme? Well, uh, Nagano for me was a little different and I'll tell you why in a second, but no is the answer to the other Olympics during that decade because we were all about the local connection. Okay. So no, we, we did not uh, very are uh, well we didn't have really uh, a overarching tagline for the whole program uh, it was really about localizing it so what's the specific event which market and what brand or brands well Nagano was different uh, because there we had uh, Coca-Cola Japan as a client 
So there we worked. Uh, they, they have a uh, coffee, a ready-to-drink canned coffee brand called Georgia Coffee. And I believe they sell more Georgia coffee than they do Coca-Cola. I could be wrong about that. But um, we worked with them, uh, with Coke Japan, on aligning Georgia coffee with the torch relay and then putting together marketing plans around that association. Uh, We were not involved in the actual logistics of the execution of the torch relay. And we were also, uh, the agency I worked for at the time was Lang and Associates, and we were also the global agency of record for Samsung handsets for for mobile phones, uh, who was an IOC sponsor. So we were also working with uh, the local Olympic Organizing Committee and the IOC on Samsung's sponsorship. Kim Brody had mentioned the free uh, pagers, remember? Was that from Samsung? So they they weren't pagers. Uh, It was called the Samsung uh, Phone Home Program. And we had in each venue, you have, you know, the athlete only zone, you have uh, uh, different zones of access in the venue. And there's the mix zone, which was sort of the, the first place the athletes went when they left the field of competition. In the mix zone, we had Samsung mobile phones and the Olympians signed up for the program in the Olympic Village so that when they came off the ice or off the track or out of the pool, well, not the pool in the, in the Winter Olympics, never mind. Uh, <laughs> uh, they, their, uh, their phone would already basically be dialing their family back home. And so they got a free phone call to their family after their competition. So that's what that that's what that program was. That's really cool. And then, of course, this is back in the day before, you know, like nights and weekends and calling after 10. <laughs> you know, really, that was sure. a very different mobile yeah. <laughs> uh, system back For then. Sure. For sure. So then Atlanta must have been crazy because you lived there and worked there and everything's going on around you. So what was that like? And you had many points of involvement with that Olympics. So talk to us a little bit about that. There was a lot going on. You know, the the sports marketing agency that I worked for, Lang & Associates, our our offices were in Buckhead. So, you know, that was seven miles from the um, uh, Olympic Village and Centennial Olympic Park and the, the main downtown venues. Um, we had half of that agency in the Atlanta office was working on the related projects. We also had, uh, the company was based out of Toronto, um, and we had been working on the Olympics in Canada going all the way back to Calgary uh, in 1988. Um, So we had about a dozen of our Canadian buddies come down also, uh, and we were even working with the Canadian Olympic Committee on their Canada Olympic House, uh, which actually, <laughs> I, was, I just drove by the Olympic House last week, and the awning is still there with the Canadian Olympic rings on it. That's crazy. Yeah, I mean, we, uh, a bunch of people left town because they heard it was going to be crazy, packed, busy. Uh, it was not. It wasn't deserted by any stretch of the imagination, but it was not gridlock any more so than it normally would have been. And we just had fun for three weeks. I worked for a week at the water polo venue. So uh, at the time, my wife and I lived three quarters of a mile from the train from a train station. So I would get up in the morning and ride the train for free in my uniform with my badge and walk from the train station downtown to the Georgia Tech campus to the pool and they had a shuttle bus and I'd do my thing and then sometimes I'd walk over to the swimming venue which was right next door and watch some swimming prelims and actually saw a couple of kids I coached in San Antonio 
swam. One of them was on the El Salvadorian Olympic team. So I got to see him swim. That was pretty cool. But just kind of live the Olympic Games for a couple weeks. Uh, there's a famous pizza restaurant not too far from our house at the time. And uh, the torch relay went right down Peachtree Street. Um, so we decided to have a party there and we had about 50 people. And I think the torch was supposed to come by at about 10 PM and Peachtree street in, in Buckhead is six lanes wide and Peachtree street, uh, was completely packed with people completely packed. It was so densely packed that the torch relay police escort was using motorcycles and, and squad cars to force people back so that they could get the torch through. And the torch didn't come until one o'clock in the morning. Fortunately and unfortunately, uh, they kept selling us beer. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, to see the torch come by two days after I had carried it myself and to hang out with all these people that we had worked so hard together for years on our projects. It was just, it was just a lot of fun, a lot of fun. And, you know, of course there was the uh, Olympic park bombing. I'll never forget that. I was not there. That that was not a good thing. How did that change the feel of the city? Uh, I will tell you that my perspective is a little bit narrow because um, I wasn't going downtown anymore at that time. You know, water polo was over. So, you know, we, my dad was in town and we went to Athens for, um, for a soccer game and we went to the mountain bike race. But so from my narrow perspective, in a bizarre way, it kind of didn't. Once the announcement said, we're going to continue with the games, which wasn't a shock, what are they going to do, shut the games down? It felt like things just kept rolling. But to be fair, I was not downtown that, at that time frame. The other thing about the Atlanta Olympics, there, there were two other weird things. Uh, one was, I don't know if you guys are old enough to remember the Olympic ceremonies for Atlanta, but you might have seen video of it. They had the Chevy, they had the trucks come out. Yes. Oh, yeah, the, the, the Bubba Olympic. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was weird. Izzy, the mascot, was weird. And then um, the city of Atlanta did its own sort of ambush marketing program. And so they had sold sponsorships to like police barricades and things like that. And then they also had a bunch of vendors uh, that they had uh, permitted to sell. So depending on where you were in town, particularly downtown, it could look a little junky and cluttered. And the IOC and the USOC were not happy about that at all. And interestingly enough, a couple guys including the mayor ended up getting some convictions and uh, served some jail time over that, over corruption. So <laughs> there you have it. Yeah. We, we have lots of opinions about Izzy. I, I, I'm imagining that you really only have one, which is <laughs> what it, really the, the varying opinions are just about what drugs the uh, creators <laughs> were on when they came up with it. Oh, we do have a, uh, one of our listeners it was like the target age for Izzy. So she does really love Izzy a lot. <laughs> and I, I will, I will stick up for her, but yeah, we, Izzy, you, at least you answered my question. So I didn't have to ask. So what, what did you think of Izzy? That was my question well, I, too. We both wanted to know. <laughs> you know, I, I had, I had been in Norway where they had human, you know, the prince and the princess. Right. Um, uh, I love Sam the Eagle from L.A. Of course, you can't do Sam the Eagle twice. I get that. Right. But then you go to this amorphous thing, and <clears throat> now you've had other other Olympics do kind of what I call the Teletubbies, where they're these just weird, blobbish, <laughs> quasi-human things. 
So they're human enough that you can put a face on them, which means uh, you can put facial expressions on them, which means people are subconsciously going to be attracted to them. Uh, that's why babies look you in the eye and smile because they know they'll get picked up. That's why Izzy had a smile and looked at you on the shelf because he knew you'd pick him up despite his freakish deformities. Um, so, uh, you know, that, that is a merchandising thing, which I get it. Got to make money, got to pay for it. And as it was clearly in my camp of mascots that you either have to be an actual person or an actual animal. You can't be these amorphous yeah. of metal or yeah, Island of Moscow Dr. Moreau the, mascots. Moscow had the bear, right? And that made a lot of sense. Korea, this you know, a, a couple years ago, their mascots were uh, indigenous animals, right? That's what we're talking about, indigenous animals. So there are not so, many Izzy's walking around in the greater Atlanta area, you're saying? It's not overrun with the uh, Izzy attacks? No. No. I, no. No. So, they, did have a, they did have an anniversary of the 1996 Olympics, and people did drag out you know, their volunteer T-shirts or their uh, – I have – I still have the jersey I wore on the torch relay, and I still have one of the polo shirts that I wore. Um, and I keep saying – and I have some of the tickets. And I keep saying I'm going to get them framed under glass. Um, but it's been 20-some years, and I haven't done it yet. So quick, quick torch relay question. How did you get to do it on a bicycle? So in order to cover the entire United States – in 100 days, uh, the USOC and the ACOG, the Atlantic Committee for the Olympic Games, they needed to use a variety of different forms of transportation. They, they couldn't hit all 50 states uh, in 100 days without using trains and some other things. So bicycles were part of the way they moved it fast. Uh, my work with USA Cycling and Fresca I had done a lot of work with USA Cycling over, you know, a five or six year period. So they they asked me if I wanted to do it uh, along with a couple other folks. So um, I did, of course. I said no. <laughs> I, I did. It. Yeah. So that why? Was cool. <laughs> what? Why did I do it? Yeah. Like, what was what made you want to do the the relay? Well, I mean, without wanting to sound flip, it's the Olympic torch relay. And, you know, I knew that at that Olympic Games, I was going to be, you know, at the water polo venue. And I knew I was going to be at opening ceremonies and at other events. And I knew I had some credentials for the aquatics competitions that could get me on the deck. Um, but... Uh, being in the torch relay was a way for me to be an official participant in the games, not not just a volunteer. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And then what did you do at the water polo venue as a volunteer? So the first couple days, uh, the first day I was in the TV trailer and that was because in college I had done some television journalism work, including some sports broadcasting, and I knew water polo. Um, so my job was to kind of be the predictor of what was going to happen and whisper in the director's ears, if you will, um, through a headset so that the director and the camera crews could be in the right place at the right time. That only lasted a day because the producer or the director kept, uh, when there's a shot, like in soccer, um, when there's a shot in basketball, the goalie blocks the ball and the goalie picks the ball up and looks down the pool for his counter-attacking teammates. And there's no action where the goalie is holding the ball. The action is at the other end of the pool, but the director kept having the camera pointing at the goalie holding the ball. So the camera is showing the goalie holding the ball, and I'm saying in his ear, 
There's an exclusion about to happen on the left-hand side of the counterattack. There's an exclusion about to happen. Oh, tweet, 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 tweet. There's the exclusion, and the camera missed it, right? And so at the end of the day, I'm like, you have to stop following the ball. He Apparently, he didn't like that. Um, so uh, for the rest of the Olympics, I was poolside in an air-conditioned tent, uh, entering into the IBM computer system every single movement that happened in every single water polo game. Click, 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 click. Every pass, every shot, every foul, every block shot, every tip shot, every exclusion, every penalty, every timeout. Click, 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 click. Wow. So now we know where all the statistics come from. Yeah. Yeah. And to my knowledge, 98% of what we put in was probably never seen again. <laughs> but it's the 2% Stu. It's the 2% you got to live for. Right? Yeah, baby. The 2% who are loving you. All those historians. Yeah. 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 What was it like as a marketer in Atlanta where you're dealing, or maybe in all of the games, where you're dealing with tons of other marketers around as well? Because, you know, you have all the other Olympic sponsors and then with Atlanta they had all these other sponsorships did you were there conflicts with others so my interaction with other official Olympic partners was fairly limited that was handled mostly by an entirely different team of Coca-Cola employees and another agency however I would say that um, I did have interactions with a number of other official sponsors like Swatch, um, Budweiser, et cetera. And there had been clear communication between all of them as to what their plans were. Um, and, you know, if there were any dust-ups, they had happened months beforehand um, and had been worked out. You could see some commonalities. For example, each major sponsor and a number of non-sponsors had a major physical footprint. So uh, Swatch had Swatch House. Coca-Cola had Coca-Cola Olympic City, uh, which the property uh, that where that was is now the Georgia Aquarium and the, the, the somewhat new world of Coca-Cola and the Civil Rights, the Human Rights Museum where... Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s papers are and, and all of that. Um, but that was kind of a theme park almost uh, for the Olympic Games, and no one else did anything like that. Um, I spent a lot of time at Coca-Cola Olympic City because the Olympians and Olympic hopefuls that we had been working with were making daily appearances there. So Coca-Cola had a staff of people that were running Coca Olympic City, and my team was liaisoning with them for months in advance, as well as during the games itself, on planning different athlete appearances and bringing in equipment from the NGBs. You know, you, you couldn't bring in a water polo pool, but you could have balls and caps and, you know, mountain bikes and kayaks and all kinds of things for people to see just to better understand the sport a little bit. Very cool. And having worked on the Olympics, what is your impression of them now? For me personally, it's all about the competition and the process that the athletes went through to get there. You know, friends of mine who were on Olympic teams in Rio were, you know, posting pictures of how their toilet didn't work and all this kind of stuff. So there's the, there's the athletic preparation, but then there's the realities of being on the ground for your, for your competition as well. Same thing in Sochi, by the way. But uh, you know, it, it's all about that. I, I'm, I'm, I'm. I guess I'm a typical man in that I'm not super interested in the backstory. When NBC used to have its pay-per-view, I bought the pay-per-view that allowed me to watch every single water polo match. Like I want to watch the competition. I don't want to watch the highlights package at night. I want to watch, and I will watch biathlon. It's fascinating. I, 
I will watch badminton. It's fascinating. The speed that those guys move um, and the speed of the shuttlecock is unbelievable. Um, same thing with table tennis. Um, I just like folks putting it all on the line. And somebody's going to win and somebody's going to lose. Um, but to me, that's what it's all about. So that's the magic of the Olympics for me. You have you know, a woman from Palestine or uh, a guy from Guyana who are swimming in a heat of the 50 freestyle. And you look at some of those times and you say, why is the Olympics spending the money it takes to let these people go down the pool once uh, with a time that's so far from finals or semifinals that it's bordering on ridiculous. But these people went through a qualification process. They trained, they took it seriously, and they're there to represent their country. And that to me is the Olympics. I think that because human beings are behind the Olympics uh, and human beings are flawed and broken, the Olympics are also, you know, the Olympics reflect the humans who, who run them, power, money, corruption, cheating, it's all there. Um, and that's unfortunate. But any, anytime you have humans involved in something, those, those things are going to happen. Thank you so much, Stu. That was really interesting. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, it really was. I mean, the stories that come out of Atlanta, I mean, we joke that we like our watches Swiss and our steaks rare, but really, they were serving up a lot of steaks. That's where the joke comes from. (laughs) But okay, so Fresca, you Mm -hmm. may recall, for a long time was my favorite, absolute favorite soda. Yes. So when he was talking about Fresca, I'm like, oh, I haven't had a Fresca in a really long time. So (laughs) did you enjoy one? No, I can't find it. I can't find it. So I don't know what's happening with Fresca, but it is not in my area. I'm hoping to get to Atlanta this year. Have you been to the world of Coke? No, I've never been to Atlanta. Oh, okay. We should make that happen. Let me go do some research. Not in the summer though. No, probably not. It was really cool because I didn't realize that Coca-Cola World and the aquarium were where this big like city Coke City thing happened, which is right next to the Olympic Centennial Plaza, which is where the bombing happened. So it's right. really kind of interesting to to know what happened there for the Olympics and then see what happened next. How central it was. Mm-hmm. It was. It's really interesting. So I don't get out much. <laughs> uh, moving on to Tokyo 2020 updates. <laughs> News has come out that Tokyo 2020 will be re- using recycled aluminum from Fukushima in the torches for the torch relay. Oh, you know, my first reaction is that's really amazing. And then my mm-hmm. second reaction is, of course, awful. Because I'm thinking, aren't they radioactive? Oh. I know. Isn't that terrible? I actually think it's a wonderful gesture. I like when they do stuff like that, like include the history and include what's happening in the country. and Right. And it's all so symbolic. And that's what makes right. everything so special. The more symbols that are involved, the more. It's really good. Also, Japan has instituted a sayonara tax. And if you are leaving Japan you will have to pay about $9 when you leave as a tax that is going to help pay for the Olympics. Is it really called the Sayonara tax? Oh, uh, that's what the news was calling it. But they wanted to I pay for Well, really they, they basically that. say um, they wanted money to pay for technology terminals to process visitors quicker and to add improved international language signing throughout the country. Oh, and that will that will stick right. around. Yes, exactly. And it's also expected to go towards installing cashless payment terminals for public transportation. That will also help people move around quicker. So, And moving people in Tokyo, I know, is a big issue because right. that is a packed city. It is a packed city, but they have an amazing transportation system. So that, that is also interesting. So, yeah, it's about it's a thousand yen, which is about nine bucks now. So hopefully that won't be too much. Uh, and people won't notice it, but it's probably kind of like when you pay for an airline ticket and you don't notice all the little surcharges that you have to pay as well. Yeah, it's all broken in there and you're just like, oh, okay, it's cost of doing business. Right, exactly. News from the IOC. 
the 2026 Winter Game bids are due on Friday, January 11th, but apparently the IOC is being flexible about it. Yeah, because nobody is submitting bids. (laughs) Right. So we're down to hopefully Stockholm and hopefully Milan slash Cortina. That's right. And so we will see who's actually bidding when uh, bids are due and the host city will be selected in June. Moving on to our team Olympic fever update. Tofu. Kim Rohde, our Team Olympic Fever shotgun shooter, has been elected chairman of the ISSF, which is the International Sports Shooting Federation, and she's been elected chair of their athlete committee, which is very exciting. I mean, that's a big deal. And who else are they going to elect? I mean, seriously, <laughs> she, they shouldn't be, she shouldn't be chairman. She should be queen of the athlete committee. Come on. She can make her own crown with all her medals. <laughs> Well, and, and in our final uh, slice of tofu, our bobsledder, Josh Williamson, uh, did not have a great first race on the World Cup circuit this year. He was in Cody Bascu's sled, and they finished 20th out of 20 racers. Cody was hurt, and he actually had to start in the sled. But here's the kicker. The start times of the sled, with three men pushing the bobsled, were still on par with the other sleds that had four men pushing. However, something happened at the end of their second run, and they finished 10 seconds out of first place, which is like an eternity. Yeah. So I don't know what happened. I was trying to watch the IBSF TV, and they kept... I was able to watch Heat 1 just fine, but Heat 2, they have said over the last few days that the video player is not available in my country. So I don't know. That seems very discriminatory. Yeah, I know. And it's weird because it, it, unless they showed it on the Olympic channel. Oh. And that could be it. Now that I think about it, maybe that's it. So I they got to go find it. it. Yeah, well, I, I mean, if the start times were good, then we know Josh's leg is all better. Yes. Because he was nursing a, a hamstring. Yes, exactly. I think it was. Exactly. So that, so that boded well. Yes. So hopefully Cody will get healed up and that the rest of the races go well this i didn't even know they were allowed to do that oh yeah yeah i know they're allowed to have somebody start in In the the sled sled. i would think that that would be regulated whether you can i don't know i mean you know something about that now makes me want to look at the history of bobsled because the sleds were so different do you do you did, did you see some of the sleds when we were at lake placid yes Okay, it was so, just like an open sled, like a, a right. Exactly. So you have to think that maybe more people used to start in the sled, huh? Maybe they. Oh, now we gotta go. Now look what you've done. What now I've I'm done. Spend an, what I've done. Yeah, because you brought this up. <laughs> now I'm gonna spend hours looking at you know bobsleigh racing from a hundred years ago. I think that's a perfectly good way to spend your time. Which is why we do our podcast. <laughs> why we do what we yeah, do. yeah i don't i don't what's what's wrong with this what's the problem there i don't know <laughs> complaining huh <laughs> well on that note i guess you've got stuff to do so, apparently i do so we will call it an episode we've been celebrating our patrons on social media over the last couple of weeks last week we did facebook this week we're doing twitter so giving a shout out to all the patrons who donated at our um the, the levels that uh, give you social media shout outs. If you would like to join us and become a patron of the show, please check out patreon.com slash Fever. We would love to have you join us. And we've got really cool patron perks. I like them. I like them too, because it's fun every week, every month I pull together the bonus audio. So it's really fun. This month, the, the bronze level and above, they got a little sneak peek of what what it's like behind the scenes of the show? Oh no! Oh yes! Oh dear! Yes. Who did I insult people? No, we just—I oh, don't think. Maybe I'm not. I know because really. the pa- so the patrons have an advantage when playing Allison insult bingo. Right, right, right. Oh dear! <laughs> but that was a lot of fun to listen to. And yeah, past, that could definitely had... be used as bribery if we ever run for public office. <laughs> I don't think that's happening anytime soon. Yeah, no, I don't think so either, but just say it. 
just another possibility of making money. You never know. You never know. We like to help our listeners as much as we can. Well, on that note, we will wrap it up for this week, and we'll catch you back here next week for more Olympic stories. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, keep the flame alive. Stay in touch. Email us at olymfever at gmail.com. That's O-L-Y-M fever at gmail. You can also leave us a voicemail at 530-763-3837. That's 530-70-FEVER. We're on Twitter at Olympfever, and you can join in the conversation at our Facebook group, Olympic Fever Podcast. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, keep the flame alive. But it's the 2% stew. It's the 2% you got to live for.